Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the long-promised This Is Sting Part 2 portion of our dive into the career of one Steve Borden. I am joined, as always, by my good friend Mike Spears. Mike, are you ready to talk Sting? I realize now that you were doing Sledgehammer. Hey, you were doing Sledgehammer before we hit recording. I was like, damn it, I know the words of Sledgehammer. I could have had it in there. No, but I, yeah. I, I was doing night moves, Mike. Oh, well then double fuck me. I'll do it for the listeners. This is what I was singing before the show. Working on the sting pod. And listeners can hear with that with the way he was intonating that that it was very close to Peter Gabriel Sledgehammer. I've now sang on Two straight podcasts. This seems bad. <laughs> I mean, we're at a point. I mean, we promised this last month and we're a month late. So <laughs> almost two months late. Hey, we, we got one in right, right before the end of February. March was no go. April, yeah. we're getting in right before the end of April. We'll finish this this summer. We'll finish this before all out. Yes, I feel confident we will. Hopefully the next one won't be so long. Uh, really, one of the major problems was I just got off track doing this research for this part because so much happens between 1990 and 1999 that I ended up going down rabbit holes of, I don't know, deciding I needed to let the listeners in on like TV ratings every week of the Monday Night War or uh, the exact makeup of the booking committee, you know, week by week. Uh, so I've, I've trimmed a lot of that fat. I'm back to focusing, you know, I, I remembered this morning we went to the five match thing because it was so hard doing like every moment of someone's career. And then here I've done like every moment of Sting's career. Yeah. You've, uh, I, I let you go on this wild goose chase by yourself. You, you need to discover yourself why we stick with five matches. You know, like it's a learning I, I, exercise. I think I've done it. I think I've discovered it. Uh, too late for myself, but not too late for part three. So hopefully I'll have it set up for part three better. Okay. Sting. Where we left off was this. It's looking like we're getting toward the end. This is very funny, but in 1989, it's looking like we're toward the end of Ric Flair's run on top in the in Crockett. So where do we go from there? Uh, Sting is a possibility. Lex Luger is the other possibility. Or, I suppose, sticking with Ric Flair is a possibility. So that's where we left off, as I recall. Mike, do you have any... Any thoughts you want to knock out of the way before we dive into 1990? Yeah. So at this point, we are now in full-fledged WCW. Uh, it, it might still technically be called uh, the National Wrestling Alliance for a few more weeks or a few more months. But by the end of 90, it is fully WCW at this point. And if you take a step back and look at like 1990 for wrestling, and, and I think it's something that's worth to kind of put this all in context and basically sting's first five years of his career started in the real downfall of the territories so in 1990 places like continental uh your memphis territory still exist 
but not a whole lot else at this point. So the fact that WCW was deciding to do this era change or was debating the era change with Ric Flair, and I have a feeling that we're going to get into the various arguments that went on at that time, especially one done by a former Pizza Hut CEO. It, 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 that this was like a big question because without the territories really being able to shuttle people around, it, as we see through the next few years, it really took a while before WCW found the stars of the 90s, found your people, some of the people we'll be talking about in this episode, and really got behind it. But it was also not due to a lack of WCW trying to shoot itself in its own foot. So it's an interesting time, I feel like, in the territories at this point. Yeah, and what we're also going to see is you have WWF really flexing its muscle and often trying to sign guys away from uh, from WCW, mostly to try to put WCW out of business. You know, that's like a lot of what McMahon is doing, as we talked about on This Is Sting Part 1. So, and I talked a lot about it on um, the 1984 episode that I did. So. You also have to keep that in mind, that WWF is the big game in town. WCW is, at this point, trying to compete with WWF and trying to figure out what the best way to go about that is. Uh, And so that's, I guess, where they're trying to figure out who's the guy to lead us, to get us closer to WWF. Yeah, and the only other thing I would add in to this because I feel like we've kind of staged this pretty well, is just so people know, WWF in 1990, it has still has not started to dip. Like, this is, we're still in the, uh, it's the last and dying years of Hulkamania, but Hulkamania still exists. Uh, we One, Jim Helwig really hasn't entered the picture and it changed a lot of McMahon plans at this point, so... WWF in 1990, yes, they were bailed out a couple times, ironically, by Donald Trump around WrestleMania time. They were definitely in the dominant position going out of the 80s. So that's why WWF was able to do this poaching. And we'll talk about some of the people that they managed to poach away because by the end of the – even before we get into the Attitude Era, like there was already – it was a hot war between WWF and WCW way before that. Absolutely. And Hulk Hogan will loom large in this this episode and this era in pro wrestling. So I'm confident we'll talk much more about uh, the Hulkster. So just finishing up 89 to bring us to where Sting is, um, he has been aligned. He ends up aligned with Flair and joins a newly reformed Four Horsemen. And the Horsemen are a face group at this point. And so it's Flair, Sting, Arn, and Ole Anderson are your horsemen. So the tension here is that at Starcade 89, Sting wins a four-man round-robin Ironman tournament. In the last match, he beats Flair to get the total number of points that he needs to win the tournament. So suddenly he's the number one contender for the NWA world title. Uh, And you have to keep in mind, which this is going to become very important soon, that Ric Flair is also booking at this point. So clearly Ric Flair's thought is that Sting is the guy to uh, pass the torch to and carry on. Uh, but there's a lot of issues behind the scenes. In the February 5th, 1990 
issue of The Observer, Dave Meltzer writes, the behind the scenes backbiting is so totally out of control here, I almost don't even want, don't even want to deal with it. None of it is anything that is going to help the company get on the right footing anyway. And that's the story of WCW until it's close. <laughs> like <laughs> yes. 1990 for the next uh, 10 years and several months. This is This is what we're in for. Buckle up. Yeah, WCW behind the scenes is like AEW on screen where it's always a dissension angle. Uh, you know, units, factions are always forming and breaking up, uh, but it's playing out behind the camera, although sometimes on camera. Okay. At Clash in 1990, uh, the Sting gets kicked out of the Four Horsemen. This is February 6, 1990. So early in the show, uh, they kick him out of the this is clash 10 out of the horseman because he refused to give up his title shot against flair so they're building toward a big sting and flair match for the title unfortunately there's a real big issue so main event it's a cage match rick flair arn and ole against buzz sawyer great muda and dragon master sting was supposed to run down to ringside start a brawl with flair they were going to brawl, and uh, the fans, according to Dave Belzer, would be urged to call the 900 number to see how it all turned out. So Sting charges the ring. He gets pulled down. He breaks away. He's trying to climb the cage to get at Flair, but when they're pulling his leg to get him off the cage, uh, they tore the patella, the patella tendon, in his knee. So it was so bad that instead of doing exploratory surgery as they originally planned, they had to do a major operation. Dr. James Andrews did the uh, the surgery. And basically, they found out after the surgery, he was going to be out until at least the middle of August. So suddenly, they're right back in this position of where do we go from Flair? Yeah, and... It's something that with Flair being the booker and he gets a couple stents like this is like I think this is like his first true major one like he was office and he would send in the meetings and there might have been times that he was nominally the booker but like this is a time like if you're interested to see other booking decisions by Ric Flair Mick Foley's first book it is very biased but he does not mince words about Ric Flair as a booker like this like this uh, is the, the the whole thing with Sting in a lot of ways epitomizes how bad Ric Flair's tenure as a booker is. He's not a good booker, and he had terrible luck when he was booker as well. And speaking of bias, you also have to keep in mind when we read Observer uh, sections from this era, Dave was always very close with Ric Flair. So when you hear information about Ric Flair in the Observer it's usually safe to assume it came directly from Ric Flair. So always keep that in mind. Or if it's something that's slightly negative towards Rick, he will soften it. Like yes. it, 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 It's funny that he does all this for Rick, but his biggest source of all time was Terry Funk, and he would never mince words with Terry. Yes, but Flair, oh, he just, it's wild. Um, here's a, a, a section from the February 26th, 1990 observer. There are, and this sets the, sets the tone. I think there are several major problems within the NWA that are no secret. 
There are too many people in charge, some of whom don't know a thing about wrestling, and the organization is in a constant battle to get anything done. Everyone is constantly under fire, and that's the problem. For this group to make it, long-term planning must be done. But the way things are, any long-term planning is a ridiculous waste of time. How can bookers book month in advance, or even a year in advance, as the management keeps insisting, when management had the company uh, and the company in general have been so erratic at keeping talent in the fold? Last week, I, Dave, brought up a scenario about Scott Steiner, who could have been Brian Pillman or anyone uh, created and shot to the top immediately. So a new babyface superstar, which is desperately needed, would be created. Instead, and this is kind of what we know with Sting being out, Lex Luger was turned. So that's the idea of where they're going. And Meltzer goes on to say that basically, instead of them taking the time to build a star, they immediately turn Flair because in his telling... Management is on top of Flair to deliver short-term TV ratings. Uh, so that's what they did. And they went to Luger. Uh, and now we're at Wrestle War, where Flair is wrestling Luger. And this is another interesting story. So I'll pause and let, let Mike uh, pipe up on anything from that section. So I... Because I feel like we kind of need this for for at least until 95, I have WCW history pulled up, especially about booking changes and like they were like, it was such a mess. And it's something, there's a reason why we, we talk, we're going to be talking about certain time periods here because arguably there were the most uh, rocky periods of WCW before, really before Nitro, before things really kind of turn around there. And it's the ongoing thing with this because up until 88, so 1988 was when Ted Turner bought Jim Crockett promotions. Like Jim Crockett never booked, but he, he always had like a comfortable group and you like, you would have Ole on for several amount of months and then Ole would go down to Georgia and then so forth and so on. Now you have all these layers of Turner oversight because ever while we're talking about this and this is something I should have said at the top, while we're talking about this, think about 1990, think about 1992, 1993, and think about the rise of CNN because this is the same apparatus that WCW quickly was like thrown into. And an argument could be made that there was never any adjusting for the fact that you've, you've put a wrestling promotion under the biggest cable news uh, umbrella. How are you going to figure this out? So I feel like that that really encapsulates like the whole thing that Dave said in that observer, just kind of taking taking the camera back. Let's look at this at a, as like a macro uh, scenario for one second. Yeah, no, that's a great point. It's a it's a a wild web uh, that has been weaved here, and there's like an even crazier, I think, an even crazier part about to come up, which is oh yeah, so it's oh yeah, it, it's Luger. Against Flair. Uh, Sting is at ringside. And basically, Ole Anderson attacks Sting. Luger tries to save him, loses by countout. So the story is that they wanted, WCW wanted Flair to lose, to drop the title to Luger. And the story that's gone around is that Flair refused because he said he'd promised Sting that he was going to, lose the title to Sting. So he was waiting until Sting came back from his injury to to lose the title. Now, 
that may be true, but there's a, a more interesting thing there, which is that Ric Flair had in his contract that he got to decide whether and to whom he lost the title. So he had absolute veto power over losing the title to Lex Luger, and he exercised it that night, which, I don't know, don't give the guy that in his contract <laughs> if you want to strong arm him into dropping yeah. the belt. And an argument could be made that this whole fracas about Luger and staying in Russell War to Great American Bash was one of the major reasons why he left less than 18 months later was all of this. Also considering who was brought into WCW to run at the time, who I think was already nominally the vice president at this point. Like, because it was not Watts at this point. We're talking about Hurd right now, right? Yes, this is Jim Hurd era. So Jim Hurd. Look, I, I, we're, we're going to take 60 seconds. I, I, I'm throwing Aaron off this. Take 60 seconds to give good bios for these people. Jim Hurd was a successful pizza hut franchisee owner he went to pizza hut corporate he had zero wrestling experience and he was hired by ted turner and put in charge of wcw and the relationship between rick flair and uh jim hurd i think icy is a very complimentary <laughs> way to describe it yeah i think maybe helpful context is that ted turner just loves pro wrestling. And he also, there was like a, I can't remember the exact story, but there's a business thing where wrestling helped him uh, at some point in building up uh, his media empire. So he felt indebted in some ways to pro wrestling. And so when things go poorly, he's like making big moves, you know, to try to uh, get WCW on track. And yeah, one of those was bringing in Jim Hurd and, it led to a lot of issues with people. Uh, but as we were talking about the the war, the early war with WWF, uh, I wanted to bring up this point from uh, The Observer on March 5th, 1990. Expect as the year goes by, this group, WCW, to turn even more into a Southeastern regional promotion. The problem is that if the pay discrepancy between similar level performers here and in the WWF gets wide, it will become a situation where WWF can cherry pick the most marketable talent which would make it difficult for NWA to maintain enough respect to draw profitable pay-per-view numbers. And that is the future of the business and the reason that in the long run, the NWA should survive and eventually flourish. The top talent, Flair, Sting, and Luger are all under long-term contract. So this is a echo of what started happening in 1983, where Vince was able to pay everyone so much more and that's how he got hogan from awa that's how he got all of these top stars was just he threw his wallet around he's using his dad's checkbook and the bankroll of capital sports i think it was called titan there he changed the titan at that time but they this was the bankroll at play whereas with wcw wcw was and uh the mid-atlantic was seen as kind of like a i don't it not retirement territory it was seen as, hey, you're starting to settle down. You might have a family. The Carolinas, the cost of living, especially at this time, dirt cheap. You can do the loop basically in a car. You don't have much plane flights. And a lot of that's why a lot of wrestlers ended up in the Carolinas was because of the Mid-Atlantic route. And 
the, the fact that uh, WCW, even though they were under the auspices of Turner Broadcasting Systems, they were not going to open up the, uh, the purse strings because they had these locked long-term contracts. Whereas if they were able to open them up and renegotiate, that probably would have made it more difficult for this raid that would happen over the next few years. And in the wake of the Russell War fiasco, uh, Ric Flair resigned as chairman of the NWA Booking Committee, uh, ending a nearly seven-month reign. Uh, and Dave goes on to do some Flair apologia, uh, Flair Booker apologia here. Uh, but the main thing to know here is Flair steps down as Booker, and we're basically going by committee uh, for a short time. Uh, but while Sting is out here, he is around a lot. He's on TV a lot. Basically, every show, he's around. Uh, they even, in the middle of this, uh, this is from The Observer, April 16, 1990, even did this. RoboCop debuts on TV this Saturday for the NWA. Originally, he was going to be brought in as the bodyguard for Sting. I believe the term bodyguard won't be used because it'll rub off the wrong way on Sting. Anyway, Robo is about five foot eight and has to stand on a box in the interview with Sting that'll air so he doesn't look small. It all has to do with promotion for the movie RoboCop 2 that comes out this summer. One small step for the movie world, one giant trip for wrestling kind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that poet, the, Dave Belter. And that's why that photo of Sting and RoboCop got around. Yeah. Delicious, delicious corporate synergy. There was, there was just some things that I had to include because I knew people maybe had some knowledge of them and wanted maybe more of a story. So there you go. Uh, in May of 1990, Ole Anderson becomes the NWA booker. <laughs> and The angriest man who ever lived. And this took me down a real rabbit hole that I have luckily excised from the notes here. Uh, but Ole's the booker. And basically what you need to know about this part is that it's about time for Steen to come back. So he's going to re-debut at Great American Bash against Flair for the title. And here's what Dave writes uh, in the July 9th, 1990 Observer as we're leading up to the match. Uh, the underlying or underlying the result of Flair Sting is a much bigger question. It's one that ties in both of the major promotions in the United States. The question is the future of Flair. My hunch is that one way or another, that question will be answered before you read this. The reason I say that is because if Flair wants to go to the WWF, for many reasons, this is the best time to go. And as holder of the title belt, he has one bit of leverage that may just be strong enough to get him out of his NWA contract, which I believe lasts until either late in 1991 or early in 1992. The stumbling block is the contract. For Flair to go to Titan, the NWA would have to release him from his contract. Obviously, the NWA, and in particular Jim Hurd, aren't going to do this without some trepidation. In fact, more than any other reason, it was Hurd's decision not to release Flair from his contract in late March, which was why the NWA's planned title change to Lex Luger never took place. So I guess I, I did not include that at that time, Flair, when he resigned as Booker, asked to just be let out of his contract completely, uh, and they refused to do so. Was this before or after Spartacus? I don't know the answer to that. So... When we talk about Hurd, and this does tie in things, this is another reason why Jim Hurd was seen as a problem. Jim Hurd thought Ric Flair was getting way too old. He made him get a haircut, and he was like, I want you to start being dressing like Spartacus. I want you to be our Kirk Douglas-like figure. Ric Flair, being in the wrestling industry at this point, 
for well over 25 years, told him to fuck off. Heard and Ric Flair's relationship was icy to be positive about it. Which makes it very funny that Heard is the one who reportedly gave Flair the clause in his contract that he could veto title changes. So, oops. Uh, but that leads us to the match. So we could actually talk about some wrestling for a second. Uh, and this is Sting versus Ric Flair at Great American Bash on July 7th, 1990. And, uh, of course, Sting wins, as you would expect, takes the title from Flair. Um, Mike, I'm interested in your thoughts on the match. So I think this was the best match out of the six we're going to talk about today. Like, oh. the, Yeah. Yeah, there's stuff I thought was cool as hell, but if we want to say, like, what makes the best match, I think this is, if only for the fact that the crowd, like, Sting has a presence that I think a lot of people before – Sting came back to WWE and then came over to AEW. I think people forgot that like Sting has a presence and he has a certain level of command that we did not see in the last episode. Sting now is a fully fledged, fully formed wrestler and now is able to really like have this match that in contrast to the first clash match, this isn't about him like holding on. This isn't like things where he finally gets it towards the end and is running out of time. No, he's in control for a lot of it because, like, the big plot element about this match was the dudes with attitude who who formed around Sting uh, basically held off the horseman and El Gigante was handcuffed to Ole Anderson standing on the ramp. So you have the idea that the crowd knew that they were going to get a clean finish, so they were even more hyped into it. And it's just, like, the command of the crowd of all this, and we don't get, like the tenor of a pop like we got when Sting did an inside cradle on a figure four to win the NWA world title at this point. It, it was just special. Like, this was a real special match. Like, I went a four and a quarter on it. Like, in the greater mm. scheme of things of Ric Flair matches, not Ric Flair's best match. I don't think it's as impressive as the Clash match, but there's a catharsis when Sting wins. And, like, Sting is, like, walking up the ramp with, like, the title belt, and he just looks like the coolest guy in the world. His fireworks are going off in the rigging and all around him, and then the uh, pyrotechnic of Sting comes down afterward. They're just like, man, uh, point to the sign, listen to the theme, he's the ace. And, you know, the the it. who knows how the crowd would have responded to Luger in 1990, but I can say, I, we can't say how it would have happened if this house switch happened to Luger. Like, we've seen them try to try again with Luger and how it failed a lot of the times. But with Sting, I think we could uh, unequivocally say that this was the right decision, putting the belt on him and not on Luger, at least for this moment in time. Like, it just made perfect sense. Yeah, we're going to talk a lot about that uh, because Dave returns to it over and over again. But to me, there's just not an argument to be made that Luger ever got the crowd response or ever had the connection to the crowd that Sting did. Uh, so, uh, I don't know, I just can't imagine that it would have been a better idea to to go with Luger here. Uh, the match itself, I think you really see here... Now, remember, Sting is just coming off of major knee surgery. So, as as Dave points out, he didn't do any of his moves that would require a heavy landing. No top rope moves, no leapfrogs, didn't dive out. Um, but he is, comes across as such a natural performer. He knows how to play the crowd. 
he does have limited offense. We see that. Uh, but he is now flair obviously is one of the all-time greats but he's really good at selling for flair he's good at hitting his moves letting flair cut him off like these two are just really wonderful together uh so yeah i was four stars on the match dave went three and a quarter uh or three and three quarters uh but he says as you were talking about the pop the pop was very loud and sustained and one of the more impressive pops i've heard in a long time and this is saying this in 1990. So that's right. The frame of reference for him saying that this was one of the biggest pops he's heard in all time when Hulkamania was less than half a decade ago. That's right. That's right. Uh, and then Dave goes on to say that Sting is going to be under a lot of pressure because he's the champion and the champion is expected to sell house shows and, you know, is going to be the guy who's going to get the blame. Uh, he's basically you know, saying Flair got all the blame when he was Booker and champion, and now that's going to be on Sting. So he says, you know, he can't live up to Flair as a wrestler, like an in-ring wrestler. And that is something that I think we're going to talk about a lot, how important that is. And to something, not that I didn't know this, but something that just became very clear reading uh, all these <laughs> over a long period of time is how much importance Dave Meltzer puts on work rate, for lack of a better word, as to what makes you a great wrestler. And, yeah, it, it's, and it starts oh, right here as soon as Sting has just won the title. Yeah, and I know that I made sure we talked about this on some show over the last week, but we need to talk about the actual definition of work rate that Dave is talking about here. Because it's vastly different from how it permeated to and what it means in 2022. Work rate literally means wrestling a whole lot, doing a lot of things, working a lot, doing a lot of wrestling. And Ric Flair was well known in the 80s as being the guy who would be out till 3 a.m. And then we'll see him at 6 a.m. on the Stairmaster for an hour. Like it just was one of those things that it was his definition almost uniquely fit Ric Flair because Ric Flair would always be the one who was who was working, working, working in comparison to his contemporaries in the AWA and especially WWF. Right. Yeah, it's literally if you think about a rate of something like that's what Dave is talking about, the rate at which you perform work during a match. Yeah, just people like in just like the passage of time there, like compare Ric Flair to Bach, like the, the period of Bachwinkle that was really going on there. No wonder he went towards Flair, although I think Bachwinkle might be the smarter wrestler. Like, like there's a lot of people can still learn from Nick Bachwinkle. People need to stop watching Ric Flair, you know? Sorry, Ram sure. Tanto. So now here we are with Sting as champion and what's going on in the WWF is that Jim Helwick, the Ultimate Warrior, is the WWF champion. And, of course... That switchover happened a lot sooner than I thought it was. I thought that was 92. No, no, no. It's it in... was 90. Okay, so I lied. These the, the, the generation change is happening right now, and Vince McMahon has a huge raging hard-on for Jim Helwig. That's right. Sorry. I, uh, that's, my, that's my end podcast correction. <laughs> so this is July 23, 1990, and... Dave is making the point that the WWF has been Hulk Hogan 
Like that's what WWF is. NWA has been Ric Flair. They were the franchise of the promotion and the champions. So Warrior, even though Warrior was champion, WWF was still really focused around Hulk Hogan at this point. I think that's more what you're thinking, Mike, is it doesn't really yeah. shift to Warrior until like 92. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think we talked about WWF touring on the last one, but uh, Hogan was on the A tours. Uh, you And this was the same thing that happened to Savage, but Warrior was headlining the B tours as champion. So Hogan was still the top star. And Dave says, however, the NWA is no longer Ric Flair. That day is over. The promotion is being built around Sting. Whether that is good or bad will be apparent in a few months. But the truth is, the NWA is in the position where this is no real right alternative. It clearly was time for Flair to lose. And the only faces that were legitimate alternatives to take it were Sting and Luger. It's hard to compare them right now. Uh, because, uh, but neither is really the right or wrong choice because there's little difference overall between the two of them. I do uh, not understand that take at all. Especially, like, he's saying this, and Luger was one of the worst wrestlers in the world for, like, two recent years leading up to this point. And he's saying yeah. that Sting is on the same level there. That's... Uh, was Wade ever nicer to Sting? Because I feel like Wade was. I'm not a... I know very little about wade's opinions over time fair uh yeah he says sting has more charisma you kidding no no joke work-wise luger might be a bit better and he's a little better Uh, on interviews fucking hell a luger interview (laughs) i mean that guy was more mush mouth and mumbly than anyone who's ever cut promos like he luger might be one like the uh historical top 25 worst all-time interviews yeah luger has more past history as being able to draw on occasion i don't know if he's talking about florida here um something sting has never has proven to be i mean he only had like one of the all-time tv ratings in the i know it was with flair but it was with flair yeah clash Uh, one yeah so Anyway, it's not kicking off at the house shows. That's the point. With Sting as champion, it's not kicking off yet. Of course, we're like a couple of weeks into it. Uh, The knee is a question mark. Part of Sting's appeal has been his flying. And there's questions if we'll ever see those daredevil moves again. And I think that's an interesting point. So uh, we'll see where we go from there. Uh, You know, and immediately, we're two months later, September 10, 1990. And Dave is starting to preview some of the awards. And so for Feud of the Year, he mentions, uh, some that come to mind are Ric Flair versus Sting, which did big business at the gate. Okay, so (laughs) did Luger do big business at the gate with anybody? Ever? Uh, In the future, too? Yeah. Okay, so what happens next is Sting goes into a program with the Black Scorpion. (laughs) Oh, I can't wait talking about Smell Perez right now. That's right. So they build this story where essentially you got this guy who is just fucking around with Sting all the time. Uh, he's a masked guy. And this who this actually was changed a lot over time. And who even who WCW intended it to be changed over time. So... Yeah, like for a long time, everyone thought it was the other power team guy, Angel of Death, right? Well, it was, it literally was Barry Windham at one point. Like, 
the intention was for it to be Barry Windham at one point. Right. So for folks, folks trying to wrap your head around it, they basically did Tiger Mass Black Tiger. Oh yeah, Th- that was that's a good deal. point. That's a good point. Uh, but people really liked the angle, and at Clash Twelve, they did a huge rating, uh, two point seven six million homes, and by the quarter hour, Sting versus Black Scorpion. And Flair versus Luger drew a 6.8 rating or 3.75 million homes, which makes them the two most watched matches in the history of cable television. So this did big numbers. Yeah. And again, 1990, we are starting to get to the the cable influx point. We will be getting to there. I think it was like 94, really, was it? It was in full stream before they started Nitro, the cable permeation got to that point. Uh it, it makes perfect sense. Like it's easy to do the this doppelganger heel storyline. Companies have done it since and before that so many different times. You do it competently well. You you just don't fuck up the formula, and everyone loves it. Like I mean, there's companies who are still doing this this storyline to this day, and it's still just as over. So yeah, you have the hot baby face, the like the one that like if you compare the the cheers in 1990 his are the younger cheers it is the kids and the women behind sing and now you instantly have this creepy big bad that the guy has to vanquish of course it got three million homes that, that that's compelling television the problem is obviously flair is in another match on the show so this was al perez as the black scorpion who was not a high level pro wrestler uh, dave gave the match one star he says well but note this While Sting didn't look like either a star or a champion by his performance, if the roles had been reversed and it had been Sting in there with Flair second from the top and Luger as champion against Perez, it would have been Luger who didn't look like a champion and Sting who did. Sting isn't the answer to the company's problems, Dave says, but a panic title change at this point would be even worse. So just keep that paragraph in mind as we move on through this program. Okay, funny note from the November 26, 1990 Observer. They were to use a magician once again, but a better one this time, as the Black Scorpion, who would turn himself into a Bengal tiger. It was the same magician used in a Janet Jackson video. Anyway, if they're now hiring magicians, why don't they ask them to perform some real magic, like turning Sid Vicious into a wrestler? (sighs) (laughs) When Dave... Uh, you know I'm about the working Sif what lifestyle in 2022. Like, yes. we're not pulling punches here. We're selling out it is here. When Dave was, like, witty, he was very, very witty. Like, the, like it, it's a very hard thing to talk about, Dave, 30 years later and just, like, how he's changed because he just went for folks. Like, he went for heads and he did not care back. Uh, the feud culminated in a match between Sting and the Black Scorpion at Starcade. And uh, I was in a cage match, Sting won, unmasked the Scorpion, and it was Flair. So that gets us uh, essentially to the end of 1990, except Dave starts changing his tune very quickly. And now he's talking about how you can immediately tell Sting uh, wasn't going to be the right guy because the Perez match was so bad. Uh, But also he has to point out, the Perez match was supposed to be a title versus mask match and they didn't unmask the Scorpion. So business goes down after that match and Dave blames it on sting, but he doesn't point out, you know, how bad 
uh, you know, this the story and the match were because of Perez. Also, Sting was selling Sting sold out a show with Vicious as his uh, opponent. So, hmm. as you can tell, I'm skeptical of Dave's outlook on Sting's run on top. Yeah, and like uh, another thing that has to be said about Black Scorpion, Al Perez did not want to be the Black Scorpion. And as soon as he found out that he was losing, he basically quit WCW right after. So an argument could be made because Al Perez was not a bad wrestler. Like, I think Al Perez was pretty decent and should have been decent enough even in a mask to have a headline match. I think an argument could be made that Al Perez sandbagged that match. Like, I do. Sincerely, because the because he was furious about this because he thought that he'd get like a belt and a run out. But it's like, no, you're losing to Sting. You're, you're his nemesis there, and they, they they fucked it. This is the kind of feud that you can only fail if you run it to the T and just plug in people there. It has been proven to be a success time and time again. And I'm not even getting into Dragon Gate stuff here with this, but they fucked it. So Dave's kind of overriding theory here is that. WCW is becoming more of a Southeastern promotion and they're mostly left with like hardcore fans and those hardcore fans want top level in-ring workers. And so that's his thought about why Sting fails in his, in his view. Um, so basically, you know, the house show business is not bumping for sure. And so they decide to uh, put the title back on to flare. And so in early January of 91, uh, flare becomes the champion again, and we'll get to that, but I want to run down. Since we're at the end of 1990, I want to run down the awards from 1990, just the one that featured that includes sting. So wrestler of the year, Ric Flair wins, uh, sting is in the honorable mentions with 91 votes. So, you know, some people thought he had a, a very nice 1990. Apparently, best babyface Hulk Hogan wins. Sting comes in fourth. Feud of the year: Ric Flair and Sting were second under uh, Jumbo and Masawa. Most unimproved, Sting wins. Most unimproved, and at this time in the awards, Dave would include little comments from the voters, and uh, I just picked this one out because it was from Mark Madden, who said Sting may have been the first NWA champion to go downhill as soon as he got the belt. Dusty Rhodes, you understand, went to a smorgasbord the moment he got the belt. The knee injury took more out of him than I think we really knew. Looking back, it's safe to say the peak of his career was Clash 1. And now you all know that Mark Madden never had a smart idea in his brain. Ever. Uh, Ever. Most charismatic Hogan wins. Sting is fifth. Most overrated Warrior wins. Sting is second. Worst feud. Ric Flair versus Junkyard Dog. Goddamn. Dave Meltzer hated Junkyard Dog, just which is miserable. Which is which is wild because how now later he how like flowery language he talks about Junkyard Dog selling out the Superdome, you know? Oh. Like, I mean, it makes you wonder some things about Dave. It sure does. Uh, Sting and Black Scorpion was third worst on interviews. Warrior one. Sting was third. Uh, that takes us into '91, where we have Dusty Rhodes is back as the booker baby all right so here's how we're gonna be doing this here aaron <laughs> we are going to make sure that 
ah, and my son Dustin, we are going to be big figures on television because we know that everyone gets around the TV with Dustin, baby, and, you know, the natural out there. And then also, one other thing, 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 you, you, you're going to be going on a voyage now because the next few years for your thing, it's going to be something. That was a bad Dusty. I apologize. It's okay. 91 was a wild time for Sting. You know, Dusty was said to be like a really big Sting fan, you know, in the in the late 80s. Uh, he does not show it in this run. Um, it's becoming the uh, WC or they're, they're bringing in the WCW World Heavyweight Championship, WCW World Tag Team Championship. So more WCW branding. In July of that year, Ric Flair is fired while he's champion. <laughs> So, and Aaron, why is that a problem that Ric Flair was fired as champion? Well, uh, he had the belt. And, 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 and why did he have the belt? I mean, you're a champion. You should have the belt if you're the champion. Like, there, that shouldn't be a problem for Jim. Actually, no. no, Jim is still the boss at this point. We're about to go through another CEO change, though. But yes. th- that should be normal, Aaron. Why is it a problem that the champion got fired while having possession of the belt? Well, uh, litigation, and I, I excise this from those two, but litigation would suggest that Ric Flair actually owned the belt. <laughs> it was his property. Uh, yep. And obviously they knew if he got fired, he was going to WWF. So there was uh, much concern about him showing up on WWF as NWA champion, which he basically did. Yeah, just change out NWA for real world. And- yes. With big gold, too, because he That's had right. legal physical possession until basically the courts told him, told WCW, pay him the $15,000 because he had a deposit on the belt. And his legal claim was based on that NWA champion would have to put a, a deposit down on the belt just basically so they won't cut and run. And they made him, he got $15,000 and they started using like an old tag team title for that when they did that. Uh, and there was like a also like a weird side argument about this. I know you excise this, but I think this is fascinating stuff. Ric Flair commissioned this belt, so there probably was a legal argument to be made that he was the actual owner of it, regardless of uh, uh, the the deposits and everything like that, right? Like I remember Absolutely. that like being being a reason why WCW wanted to get this taken care of soon as possible. Yeah, that was like a a wild goose chase that I really wanted to go into very deeply but this would be like a fucking 10 hour podcast so (laughs) we're 46 minutes in and we're in 91 so um sting basically just because i said yesterday that we were going to have it uh a big this is august 12 1991 observer tons of news starting with syndicated television tapings on august 5th in saint joseph missouri before a packed house of 3249 fans A big white box was brought to the ring as a present for Sting. Sting opened the big box, and out of the box came Abdullah the Butcher, who attacked Sting. You see, I really loved his run up top. I think he's a promising superstar. Abby, Abby, we're going to get some blood here, and you know, red equals green. That's right. Uh, Sting basically dicked around uh, the rest of the year. He won the U.S. You were talking about some people jumping. He won the U.S. title in a match with Steve Austin. He feuded with Ivan Koloff, Oz, who would be Kevin Nash, or Diesel, I guess, who's who he would be next, and Rick Rude. Uh, he's also being targeted by Luger, who was heel again because he saw Sting as a threat. 
October 21, 91 Observer, Sting signed a three-year contract that takes him through February of 1995, reportedly for $500,000 the first year, $600,000 the second year, and $700,000 the third year. Take these figures with a grain of salt, Dave. So the, the, I know why you put this in there, the, that monetary fact, but this is something to keep track of when we get into the mid-90s, the fact that he cut at the time probably was like again, Grand Salt, one of the higher uh, salary contracts in wrestling at that point. But things would change very, very quickly by then. This contract. All right, 1991 Observer Awards uh, Best Baby Face Hogan wins, Sting's second. Feud of the Year uh, Jumbo and Company versus Masawa and Company won. Sting versus Cactus Jack was an honorable mention, which we're going to talk about uh most unimproved sting gets an honorable mention davy boy smith won mike omansky says sting is only a shadow of what he once was and continues to be a disappointment this is the view of like the observer readership at this time most charismatic hogan wins sting comes in third most overrated sid wins sting gets honorable mention uh match of the year Sting pops up a few times. The war games uh, from that year and he and the Steiners versus, I'm sorry, the Steiners versus he and Lex Luger uh, from May of that year. Worst on interviews, Warrior wins. Sting comes in fifth. So that's 91. Not much happened. So I kind of sped through 91. All right. 92 jumps also are important because in January of 92, we find out that Lex Luger has given notice to WCW and he's going to be finishing up at the February 29 pay-per-view. Um, I don't, we're not, I get We don't really need to talk about the world bodybuilding federation, but, but, um, it, but everyone go search for world bodybuilding federation. <laughs> it's been well, it's well tried territory, Gary Stridham. Yeah. But basically he's got a non-compete. So it's going to be a little while before he actually shows up in WWF to wrestle. Uh, but he did, so-called competitive bodybuilding uh, before that. Yeah, so Dusty still has the book, and losing Luger is such a big personal slight because Luger was a Florida guy. Dusty was big, biggest star in the history of Florida, booked Florida a lot when Luger might have been starting out. Like, like I think Luger was around early enough that he got one of those Dusty stints. So for everything that uh, Dusty said about staying that's what he really felt about Lex Luger and the way he booked him. So major slight against Dusty. And Dusty is very powerful right now. Jim Hurd resigns because he's lost a power struggle with Dusty. Beat the man. You can't beat the thumb of a plumber. Now who's next? Who, who's coming down that pike? Well, oh, Aaron, that's, that's Kip great. Fry's music. <laughs> I left him out. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Mike. Uh, uh, I'll do this really quickly. Kip Fry was known for being very much a wrestler's uh, president basically he incorporated work rate bonuses for what he thought was the best match of the night and was kind of in a way the cool boss before we get into the bad boss that comes in right afterwards he did not have a long tenure it's just fun to say the name kip fry and he was the guy between uh jim hurd and bill watts observer february 3 1992 house show business has picked up with most crediting it, crediting it to the Sting versus Rick Rude headline feud. Well, that's interesting. Hmm. Uh, 
Later that same month, Sting won the first of his six WCW World Heavyweight Championships when he beat Lex Luger at Super Brawl 2. The the show, the pay-per-view, didn't sell very well. And Dave says, part of it has got to be attributed to the main event not garnering enough interest. So he's finding a way again to blame Sting. Which, like... WCW pay-per-views never really sold well up until Hogan came in, though, right? Like, that it, it's something that Flair was on top on pay-per-views, and they would do okay, but pale in comparison to what WWF was getting for Royal Rumble, WrestleMania, Survivor Series. And even with, like, Closed Circuit, like, Turner and WCW clearly was a live event business, so the house shows meant more, and Clash-based. So, it... it did they fail? Yes. But were they the only ones that failed and was the failing their fault? No. And it's something that I think unfairly drags Sting during this run here because nothing was strong for WCW on pay-per-view at that. They also had just raised the price by $5 of their pay-per-view. Yeah, which for them and for like pay-per-view costs, like that was a big deal when they would do those jumps. Yeah, they time. went from 1995 to 24.95, you know, in in and- 1992 dollars. Hey, $19.92, I'd love to pay $24.95 for an AEW show. Yeah, no shit. Um, not going to talk about this one at all. I'm sorry, but I just want to say that this is around the time when we had uh, Sting Squadron uh, versus the Alliance, the Dangerous Alliance, in a War Games, May 1992. Meltzer gave it five stars, considered one of the best matches of all time, I would say. Yep, watch it if you haven't watched it. That was the one match we always held back that we didn't talk about on... The uh, War Game <laughs> Blood and Guts series, sadly, it rules. Now we're leading into uh, Sting feuding with Big Van Vader. And that's uh, going to be something we'll talk about very soon. Uh, but before we get into that, Observer, May 18, 1982. In an announcement that came as a big shock to everyone, Turner Broadcasting announced Tuesday morning the hiring of Bill Watts as vice president of wrestling operations. If you listen to the series I did on Starcade 83, uh, then you probably know, or no, we talked about Bill Watts on episode one of this, right? Probably both of those. Yeah. He's kind of become a little bit of a mini character for us. He's a, a big, he, he looms large in pro wrestling and now and, he's running WCW. Yeah. And he'll loom large in this episode because if I know Aaron, he did not take, out the note about a uh, Bill Watts's exit, which for people who don't know, it was wild. But Bill Watts, uh, Aaron, Bill Watts's tenure as WCW Booker after his long tenure with uh, Mid South UWF and previously before, what would you say has changed with Bill Watts over the time? Uh, well, nothing. I mean, it's that's it. Nothing has changed with Bill Watts. He, <laughs> he he brings those in here. Here are here's how Bill Watts changed the locker room. And I'm remembering this from Mick Foley's book, first book. First and foremost, no one can leave until the main event is over. So uh, it, it was very typical at the time, especially if if you were in a if you were in a promotion that did a lot of touring and did multiple tours. That if you worked early on, you would try to hit the road, maybe make the next town or make another show there he eliminates that no moves off the top rope bill watts nothing changes and considering that he's saying this in 1992 considering uh how things will change in wcw suck in the past and lastly if you throw someone over the the top rope you are disqualified 
Oh, oh yeah. Baby faces and heels can't associate. And if you get in a bar fight, you're fired. I'm sorry. If you lose a bar fight, you're fired. They also wanted him to, or they, one of the rules was also that you couldn't uh, brawl outside of the ring, which is funny considering the match we're going to talk about next. But I have one funny note before that. May 25th, 1982 Observer. When Scott Hall quit WCW on Sunday, he said that he had lined up a job in the WWF to play a character similar to Fonzie on the old Happy Days television show. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, not dissimilar, but not at all. But very funny. Like the idea that they, I just like the idea of them pitching to Scott Hall, like, we want you to play Fonzie. He's like, hell yeah. Let's, let's All right. How, how much, uh, hey pal, how much uh, Henry Winkler have you watched? <laughs> uh, but this leads us in, what I was saying about uh, no outside brawling, to the second match that we watched, uh, Sting versus Cactus Jack from June 20th, 1992. Yeah, so the reason why I bring up all of those Bill Watts affectations is because they bring them into the match itself. But Jim Ross has to talk about the fact that he didn't move off the top rope and that wouldn't be allowed in a normal match. Uh, This is just a cool match. Uh, It's something that uh, Mick Foley, especially in WCW at this time was just so different in a way like WCW in the early nineties had like the, beginnings of iwa japan and fmw in a way because you had abby you had max Payne, you had mick foley you had a love of like just basically garbage wrestlers people who did garbage wrestling and having this like it had a tinge of a freak show but mix mick foley is talented enough that like it doesn't ever go to like the full freak show wise is happening it stays on rails but it still has that element of danger with that match uh He's just raw. Mick Foley in 92 from his music to his look and everything like this. He is just raw. It is sick as hell. And it's just something that this match in a way brings something kind of direly missed in the matches that we see previous here. Like this was something where everything leading up to this, even in the uh, the title change match, it was very much like, okay, we're doing this there's a purpose and we're looking ahead with Sting and it's preparing him for this future. And then he had his, his coordination at great American bash 1990. And then you have this new problem now that is okay. You have one of the best brawlers of all time. He brawls with everyone Sting, We know you worked in mid South a little bit of hot stuff international. We know you did a little bit of Memphis here, but you are not going to have a sting match. You are having a cactus Jack match. And that fucking rock. Yeah, like, I think that really works. Like, I've talked a lot on the on the past episode about one big issue with staying is just the moments between offense are kind of a little awkward for him. Like, he doesn't always know what to do next. This, like, falls kind of anywhere step gives him something to do between those moments. So it kind of hides his flaws in a way and that's kind of a um a theme i think that we'll see like over these next at least two matches where it just kind of hides what he's not as good at i thought this match was great i mean i thought jack was great i had this at four stars uh dave belzer was even higher he says uh cactus jack has a lot of guts but you simply can't do matches like this very often and enjoy a lengthy career ha 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 dave <laughs> yeah i mean 
it, it, it's he went four and a half by the way four and a half oh i was yeah. three and three quarters you know okay. i mean we're all in the same world yeah 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 uh i like the uh mick foley i like the Cactus jack max Payne versus nasty boys match around this time a bit more personally but it, it's in the same vein same same ballpark uh if you're if you're listening to this before watching the matches think about the difference 30 years and what a hardcore brawl is because it's very very different and it's kind of cool how 1992 like no dq matches were because it felt like more like a brawl more like a riot in a way versus plunder or palooza uh, later that year, July 1392, uh, David put out a thing. There was a lot more interaction between the readers and, and Dave, uh, in, even in these later days of the Observer. Um, and so he put out a, a ballot on who should be the long-term future top babyface in WCW. Um, and he even says, I think in some ways the wording of the question itself is going to lead people to not vote for Sting. So that leads you up to uh, to the results here. And here's how the poll came out in order. Number one, Barry Windham. Number two, Brian Pillman. Sting came in third, tied with Dustin Rhodes. Uh, and then we had Steve Austin, Ric Flair, Kurt Hennig, Steve Williams, Bret Hart, Scott Steiner, and Jerry Lawler. Jerry Lawler in 1992 <laughs> being the long-term face at WCW. That's uh, maybe maybe that was Jerry uh, mailing in his own ballots and the ballot of every Fargo he knows, maybe. Yeah, I don't know, but it's, uh, it's an he interesting list, I think. I, I don't see, I mean, I know he's gone at this point, but I don't see Lex Luger on the list. Yeah, but like... They they keep on with Wyndham's. They keep on trying to make Wyndham's into stars. Like like that's like a underlying thing of the Observer in its first decade is really want Barry and Kendall to be stars. They the readers really do. They really want it to happen. It just never does. Uh, I love Barry as a kid. Honestly, oh Barry's cool as hell. I totally get why people were like, oh no, this is the long term style. I mean, he's big, he's impressive, he can fly a little bit, he's able to match up very well, he's nails in the ring. Like, it makes sense why the 1992 Observer readership would want Barry Windham. Is that arguably there was no bigger gap between the readership and the actual wrestling populace than 1992 Observer readers at that time? Because whenever Barry really got a run, we saw how badly it failed. But this does, I mean, this is outside the context of this um episode but it does poke a little hole in this idea that which wwf has mythologized that you know steve austin was nothing before basically he came to wwf uh, also bischoff oh. has mythologized this it's like who could have guessed yeah like it's insane because this is really three four years after austin really started wrestling like he was in and out in like 88, but 89 was really when he was on here. And I mean, he's already, he went pretty quickly from uh, Global, which was a uh, after promotion of WCCW to Continental. Uh, he did a little bit of Memphis and he was pretty much landing into Crockett like before he, maybe before he finished his second year of pro wrestling. So like everyone saw stuff in Steve Austin. It's just that people don't want to admit their giant L 
Eric Bischoff. Your biggest sell probably in wrestling history. So we're back into the the Vader feud. Uh, Vader beat Sting for the uh, WCW title, which is also a great match, by the way. Uh, but this is all also happening in the context of Watts running WCW. And basically, the point of bringing in Watts was to have him cut expenses. They did not want to compete with WWF. They wanted to make money. Or they wanted to stop losing money, really. That was all that bringing in Watts was about. Right, yeah. It it was something that, at this point, they've been under... Uh, the uh, Turner, I think Turner at this point was our, was Time Warner. No, it wasn't. It didn't become Time Warner until at uh, ninety six. That's weird. But okay, so tur- for TBS, like under this uh, wrestling historically, and it's kind of wild seeing how things are in Japan right now. Wrestling historically has been a huge money loser for the conglomerate it's a part of, and and bring in Watts five years and makes sense here. But you just signed. One of your guys to over a million five across three years. So how much uh, cutting are you really doing other than his insane stuff like taking out like catering? Well, like he did away with like stuff like that. Like that was the cutting he was doing, not really contract wide. Well, there was some contract stuff because he he stopped a lot of the bigger guaranteed deals and wanted to pay guys on a a nightly basis. Uh, Now, he might guarantee you a number of dates. But you had a pretty low downside, basically. Some people did. Right, yeah. And this is after Kip Fry, who threw a million and a half dollars in 1992 to Sting, which is worth right. <laughs> uh, it, it. It's all reflections here when you look at like the corporate malfeasance of Time Warner. Yes. September 1, 1992, Observer. The WWF is said to be making an unofficial play for Sting, figuring that he must be unhappy because he's been removed from the title picture. However, Sting's guaranteed money is the contract is the most lucrative of any wrestler in North America at a reported $700,000 per year, not including substantial merchandising income thrown in and doesn't expire until early 1995. And while nothing is impossible, I'd literally be shocked at him walking away from that kind of a deal unless WCW decides it wants him to quit and makes an attempt to make his life miserable, which hasn't been the case. So Watts has a meeting with Sting, the Steiners, and Rick Rude, uh, who, according to Dave, are presumably the four highest paid wrestlers in WCW at this time. He says, while we don't have any details of what was discussed, apparently Sting, as the highest paid wrestler in the company, has taken it upon himself to be a spokesman of sorts for some of the wrestlers' gripes. The only thing I've heard were vague, no movement of positions, although apparently everything was amicable. Sting and Rude are both under contract through early 95. The Steiner's contract runs out around December, and they were each offered the $1,000 per night deal, which would probably work out to being in line with what they'd earn if they went to the WWF. All money factors being equal, the WWF would seem to hold an advantage to wrestlers who had the option of going there right now because the overall atmosphere is less stressful and depressing and the allure of it being big time. WCW still offers more guaranteed money since WWF doesn't guarantee. And there's the advantage for those with families that live in Atlanta of being home far more. The downside is the legit hard line. The WWF has had to take on drugs due to outside pressure, which could be a negotiating disadvantage in some people's eyes. <laughs> yeah. So the steroid trial was about to happen. Basically. Yeah. We're, yeah. That's another thing that I've spent a lot of time thinking about and uh, we're not going to talk about very much. 
yeah, watch the uh, watch the uh, Dark Side of the Ring. G- go see yeah. the God Jerry McDevitt. Uh, you'll be caught up there. Uh, yeah, I forgot about this uh, powwow. You know, I forgot that they had that. I I know Rude was someone that always got paid a lot more than his station. You know, like Rude, good negotiator throughout the time. I mean, he did have that IWCC. It was the IWCW world title run, but that was really it for him. I mean, he did have an AWA run, but he was getting paid really high considering where he was and what his kind of career was at that point. The Steiners, the Steiners bounced around a lot. Like the fact that you're telling me the Steiners are still in WCW at this point kind of surprised me because I thought they were already back over in WWF. Yeah, the the key here really is like they're not spending as much on talent and I just thought the stuff about WWF there and why it was more desirable was interesting, uh, largely because it kind of reminds you of AEW versus WWE now. Sure. Yeah. It, 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 like the only big difference I would say is the fact that WWE finally broke their downside system. Really? Right. Like I, we've probably talked about it. So one sense thing, WWF up until basically or WWE basically up until 2018 paid on what's called a downside, which was that you were guaranteed you were quoted an amount and you would either hit it because you'd be paid off a percentage of the gate and other things, or at the end of the year, you would get a check that would make up the difference. Everyone hits their downsides and then you get paid $500. Like uh, John Moxley did on his favorite match, his final match in the company. So, yeah. And a lot of that had to do with the network, like blowing up fucking, royalties and all that shit oh god yeah and then they just got dumb money and it just made no sense and they i mean it was just a lawsuit waiting to happen saying like this is what your revenue is this is what you're paying wrestlers like even like if you want to be the most outside observer possible they had to do that basically so that they wouldn't get the nlrb against them and that's wwe's biggest fear in the world so after he beat staying beat Cactus Jack in the Falls Can Anywhere match, I just want to mention this. Uh, he wrestled WCW newcomer Jake Roberts in a coal miners glove match at Halloween Havoc. I would have loved to include the coal miners <laughs> glove match, but I didn't. Yeah, bless his heart. You, we no one needs to see Jake at that time. To but watch it if you get a chance. It's uh, it's amazing. Uh, so then Sting has another match. Uh, at Starcade uh, against Vader. And that's the one that we've included here. It is from December 28th, 1992. And uh, Vader loses the title, right? He had won the title back. So Sting wins, wins the, the title back uh, at Starcade. You forgot the most important thing about this match. That it was the King of Cable tournament? It was the King of Cable tournament. <laughs> Which, fantastic thing. 1992, now we're talking about Cable. Uh, the way they set up this tournament was people submitted names, and we drew names out of the hat that just incidentally been like eight of our biggest stars. And they were the eighth of the biggest <laughs> stars because WCW is so built on cable television, of course, being proudly on WTBS. So you, you got to, and that's the superstation. You got to side a King of Cable. 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 There we go. The, the King of Cables. The King of Cable. What's the one that Nate always says? Isn't it about Kegels? Am I making that up? I, 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 I sure. The Queen I of think. something. All right, you, you talk about Kegels and I'll search uh, Nate's Twitter. 
I, I mean, I'm yeah. Well, l- let's talk about Vader and how much Vader rules. Okay, like, fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do that. Uh, it just was really tight. Oh, like, the s- Squirt Queen. Sorry, Squirt Queen of the Year, Annie Cruz. I apologize. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> Probably requires kegels. Squirt Queen. <sighs> Man, Texas educational system. Do you think we we really got into that kind of stuff? I, no. no, I don't think anyone talked about squirting. Or Kegel. (laughs) (laughs) All right. You can talk about Vader. Yeah, Vader's cool as hell. And Vader's career, like, it's sad that, like, Jesse Carter never was in AEW and is completely out of wrestling at this point because talking about uh, his dad, talking about, uh, uh, I'm blanking out, Leon White, he just was such an interesting wrestler, such a different wrestler, was a wrestler of his time and age was able to be like a big star like did you know that he was like the first person at the same time to hold the wcw the uwa which was the second biggest promotion in mexico and the oh no the uwfi world titles at the same time oh boy did i because this led me uh to trying to justify to myself how i could do a this is vader episode (laughs) you you want to watch the matches at from toreo i'm down i will always watch (sighs) uwa i just badly want to dig into vader uh, like I want to watch a lot of UWFI. I uh, haven't he, seen much of it, but Vader is so fucking cool, and he was just—he was great. He was great, and he was great here. I mean, this was not. The, there's like a specialness here, and then Sting's reacting like that. That's the thing that I've really got an appreciation of Sting is he is a great facial seller, and he sold that for uh for Vader a lot. Him and Harley Race. That's how I remember Vader. Uh, at least in the states a whole lot and this was like like the whole like cross belt but belly the the cross body cross belly and losing the mask and then like the the effort put in the backslide leading towards the finish and just like the sheer exertion and like him doing the huge clap to him to get out of the bear hug that's just that's just being a good baby face that's pro wrestling aaron this was pro wrestling absolutely and i thought this really shows sting getting better on offense I took Vader's offense well, even when Vader, I mean, Vader is just so fucking stiff, you know, like he just beats the shit out of people and it's cool. It always has been. Uh, And Sting like is just there with him. Like this is a great, like Sting and Flair is, you know, the all time great matchup for Sting, but Sting and Vader, they had some excellent matches at this time frame in WCW. It really was like the highlight of like how WCW changed before Flair came back. Like, it became real rough and ready. Like, a lot of Vader, a lot of Mick Foley, a lot of reasons why Mick Foley left WCW happened at this time. But it just, in a lot of ways, it kind of became like uh, Gulf Coast. It became kind of like Continental, like just brawly at a certain point. It was really kind of cool. And it was something that actually really kind of became Puerto Rico with you not getting stabbed. Like, that's kind of what the style (laughs) was for for, for like Vader and like Mick Foley. And... Sting works really well with it. No wonder Sting is so good at like these uh, at, at these plunder matches now because he's basically doing a non weapons version of it against uh, Mick Foley and Vader. Yeah, that's uh, that's a great point. I, now this was a lot of WCW booking generally, but you do notice that Sting doesn't get a lot of definitive wins. Like here, Sting caught Vader coming off the top in a power slam and got to three count. Uh, you know, so they don't really have him just like beat people 
very much. And you also wonder how much that played into uh, the reaction to Sting sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wonder if someone who really had the handle on how to book a young, young, appealing baby face got like six years with Sting. Because like, that's the thing. Sting really up until Bischoff came in did not have that ability. So it was like, what are you doing with that there? So it was so much start and stops, like imagining, honestly, uh, Vince Ju- uh, Vince McMahon Sr. booking him because Vince McMahon Sr. booked a style that would have been very complimentary to him to say. But uh, it, it's something that I think is just really sick how this was. And it, it's something that makes you like, because we've talked about this, seeing in Japan would have been very fascinating after seeing these matches, especially seeing actually getting a real singles run in all Japan in the nineties. I think that would have been really sick. Honestly, sting going to WWF, if they'd actually pushed him on top, which they probably wouldn't have. Uh, but if they had put him on top, he could have been, he would have fit perfectly in, uh, the way WWF worked. Oh yeah. I, I think there's an argument to be made that, you change the face paint up and you have a a decade-long run with Sting as Ultimate Warrior, the run that Vince McMahon really wanted that couldn't get out Jim Helwig because Jim Helwig was just batshit insane. Like, he he would have worked there. Like, just, like, plug him in for, Ho- uh, for a Warrior in 90, like, where he was in 90. Like... He could have held up the, the, those B tours very easily, and they could have had the official handoff there, and he would have been the star in the nineties. Like he would have played so much into the new generation. Like holy shit, man! Like yeah, he was the highest paid wrestler in North America for a good long period of time, but I I think he probably would have fared better at least in the short term in WWF because I think he would have been that Ultimate Warrior replacement, but better. Yeah, I don't know if he could have made more money in WWF. He certainly would have done better like as a wrestler or whatever. And that might have led to him making more money in the long run. Uh, but- well, I mean, that was the thing. WWF, the reason that the downside worked was because you were only guaranteed a minimum and people like Hogan made tens of millions of dollars. So everyone else thought that they could do the same. Right. So, yeah. But he, Sting made big money. That's for sure. Uh, I was four stars on this match. Dave was four and a half. Where were you? I was four flat. Was okay, four flat so we're we're in the same place. Yeah, and, and uh, Dave loves Vader. So yeah, well, that's why this got the benefit of the doubt. Dave did note that Sting was over as far as crowd reaction, far more than any other babyface. Interesting how that is. Yep. Yep. So that brings us uh, to the end of '92. Best babyface Sting wins. Uh, feud of the year. Sting gets a few shout outs. Uh, all honorable mention. Uh, the winner was uh, the Moondogs versus Lawler and Jarrett. But we had Sting versus Vader in the honorable mentions, Sting versus Jack, and Sting versus Rude, and Sting versus Jake Roberts, all in the honorable mentions here. He probably shows up more than anyone else because WWF doesn't do those kind of feuds at that point. Yeah. Most charismatic, Sting. Most overrated, uh, Sting is in the honorable mentions. But Eric Watts, we didn't talk about. Bill Watts pushing oh, Eric. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. So Eric is uh is Bill's kid. 
He was never any good. They kept on trying to find ways to make Eric Watts happen, even into TNA. Eric Watts never happened. Uh, was he, he wasn't Techno Team 2000, was he? Uh, I don't know. I thought it was talking about Team 2000. But, like, he pretty much got drummed out and is considered one of the worst second-generation wrestlers of all time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 he was. Uh, he was in Techno Team 2000. Uh, match of the year. The winner was uh, K&M Express against Kobashi Kikuchi in uh, Miyagi, which, if you've never seen that, Turn this off and go watch it right now. <laughs> I mean, it, it's only the best tag team match of all time. Yes, one of my favorite matches of all time. Um, Kakuji, such a good baby face in that. Yes, Sting uh, and Jack uh, got honorable mention. Sting and Vader also got honorable mention. The uh, the July match, worst match of the year. Uh, Rick Rude versus Masahiro Chono won, uh, but Sting and Jake Roberts were third. Worst feud of the year: Ultimate Warrior versus Papa Shango one hell yeah with Steve and jake yeah. uh, getting honorable mention so as we move into 93 rick flair is back um funny about that <laughs> yeah uh he's expected to be back and i i don't know if this uh ties in together but the observer february 22 1993 bill watts resigned as vice president of president of wrestling operations for WCW on the morning of February 10th. And in a meeting of WCW department heads on February 12th, it was announced that only Anderson would take Watts's position. And here's a big point. Eric Bischoff was named as executive producer of all WCW television. So Eric's in charge. Uh, you didn't say what got Bill Watts fired. And We'd be remiss if we did not talk about what exactly got Bill Waltz fired and why the, it could only happen in WCW, why he got fired. I'm, I marked it out of my notes, and it does not jump to my mind. He went on the torch and said racial epithets and Henry <laughs> right, and Hank Aaron salt. Listen to it. Yeah, it's like the, one of the most <laughs> famous firings of all time, man. <laughs> God damn it. How did I forget that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, he did. Yeah, I uh, was saying a whole bunch of racial epithets, uh, and he's still saying them today. Like if you go to Eric, if you go to Bill Watts' website now, it is just heinous stuff. But yeah, he got fired because Hank Aaron found out about this. Hank Aaron was like the vice president of uh, uh, of Turner Broadcasting because uh, Ted Turner, as much as he loves uh, uh, wrestling, he loves baseball more, and. That's how Bill Watts got fired, and that's how Eric Bischoff kind of took control because Bill Watts uh, kind of fell out of wrestling after that for a good period of time. Like, he did some WWE and TNA, but that was kind of it for Bill Watts in wrestling because of this. Yeah, I mean, he might have been able to get away with being a racist, but not against a brave. And not against hammering Hank, man. <laughs> I mean, the only brave that you could probably gotten away with that less is Dale Murphy. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Sting and Vader feud continued uh, they had an excellent strap match at Super Brawl 3 uh, all my blood perverts out there check it out it's excellent um, and then this part yeah I'm leaving it in just because it's so funny May 31 1993 Sting then teamed up with WCW newcomer Davey Boy Smith to beat the team of Vader and Sid Vicious at Beach Blast now listen closely folks 
in a match that was set up by a mini movie in which an evil midget blew up Sting's boat. <laughs> the White Castle House of Horror. <laughs> now, I'm going to read this next part just for total humor. Uh, there is a, a bad word in, so I'll probably just uh, censor myself. Wrestling Observer, June 28th, 1993. After his television show reached a new low in Arsler Wrestling Angles on Saturday, the hierarchy of WCW needs a thorough house cleaning. The problem isn't trying to identify who wrote and came up with the scenario in which Sting, Davey Boy Smith, Sid Vicious, Big Van Vader, Harley Race, and Colonel Rob Parker were involved in a reported $80,000 mini-movie production to build up the 718 Beach Blast pay-per-view main event. Here comes the good part, folks. For those of you lucky enough to not see the most flawed pay-per-view angle in history, it went something like this. The heels, mad because Sting and Smith didn't show up for a pep rally, went to a mysterious island where Sting and Smith were doing charity work. It's bad enough when wrestling people and other celebrities use charity simply to promote themselves in a positive light as a reaction to negative publicity, but at least in those cases, they do donate time and or effort to charity. In this case, the charity work consisted of playing volleyball with some child actors. Parker assured the rest of the heels that he had a plan that would keep Sting and Smith from appearing at Beach Blast. Little did he know that plan would only keep viewers from buying the show. <laughs> it wound up with a dwarf, Dave writes, wearing an eye patch, swimming with a shark fin, putting a bomb on a boat that Sting and Smith used to get to Gilligan's Island. Two very young girls saw the dwarf. The heels then took a boat ride to Gilligan's Island. And the only thing positive about that is they didn't let Harley drive the boat. <laughs> After a confrontation where the heels demanded the faces retire and the kids acted like they were going to cry if the faces would retire, one of the little kids told Sting about the funny man who was hanging around the boat. As Sting went to check, somehow one of the little girls told Smith about a ticking noise and Einstein himself started sprinting down the beach, which was a sight in itself, and knocked Sting out of harm's way just seconds before the bomb exploded and the boat blew up. Pro wrestling, and baby. And of course, the dwarf's name? Cheatham. <laughs> Cheatham the dwarf. Yes, uh, and here's another classic thing that you've seen even you chelsea have probably seen this wrestling observer august 23 1993 there isn't much to say about the clash of the champions on august 18th the show did feature the most unintentionally funny and embarrassing moment in recent wrestling history during the flair for the gold segment davy boy smith and sting were to introduce their mystery partner for the war games on september 19th in houston sting called him the shack master <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's a typo, but it's funny if it is. Uh, the Shockmaster. And he came walking uh, came walking through the wall, tripped, and his mask fell off. Uh, he had to put the mask on and stood there while Ole Anderson did the Black Scorpion voice for him. <laughs> it was one of the biggest bloopers on live television in recent memory and enough to give a marginal show a thumbs down. So Shockmaster, you've probably seen this. He's got like the Stormtrooper mask on. He, he trips and falls. Uh, it's very funny. It's, well, I was going to say it's typhoon but that doesn't mean anything to anyone if you don't know about the Shockmaster angle <laughs> yeah it's a family friend of the Rhodes family is the best way to describe it uncle fred yeah who did that oh gosh it, it's insane like now we don't talk about the Shockmaster, but there was a time on wrestling internet and this was before twitter this was like in the boarding days where the Shockmaster was like the biggest meme 
amongst re- uh, wrestling fans on the internet. Like it was kind of like, a, have you ever seen the Shockmaster? And then it'd be like, oh no, I was WF good. I never seen the Shockmaster. And then you would be told to go to Kazaa to download <laughs> the Shockmaster clip, and it always delivers in 240 by 240 uh, pixels. I'll tell you that. Yeah, it rocks. Uh, Observer, September 6, 1993. Even WCW had a share of success with its August 21 TBS Saturday Night Television, doing a 3.4 rating, largely due to Ric Flair versus Sting in a 41-minute NWA title match. The rating is the largest for a regular WCW television wrestling show in a few years. So here's Sting uh, back on top of the ratings. Uh, at the end of 93, Sting was one of the first people to congratulate Flair, who had just returned from the WWF after Flair beat Vader at Starcade to win the WCW title. So Flair's back on top as we end 1993. Yeah, 93. Uh, it, it's just something that, like, Bill Watts, Kip Fry, Jim Hurd, uh, Rick Flair, Dusty Rhodes, Ole Anderson. All these people did their damnedest over the uh, four years beforehand. Like, those are just the people that booked the promotion there. No wonder, like, so, and with the source we use, no wonder everyone was so negative towards Sting when you, each time you've brought up Sting main eventing a Clash of Champions, it is another 3.5 million, 3.7 million. Six share, you know, and it, it's something that like we can almost see this narrative and like this, I this term gets used so much that it's lost its meaning. But this was a political hit against Sting, conducted by a lot of different actors. But I think an argument can be made that you look at the malfeasance that was treated from Sting after he lost the title in ninety through ninety three, and really. If you really want to think about it, up until uh, the crow sting, no wonder all these things happened to Sting. No wonder Sting never jumped over. No wonder these things happened. This guy had like one of the more insane periods of time to be employed in the wrestling industry by one promotion that incidentally paid them and made the most, uh, give him the highest grossing contract in North American wrestling history at that point. But they kept on trying to find ways to take this guy off at the knees. It, yeah, it's a wonder they turned and, out this way. And don't forget that, you know, Flair was clearly a fan of Sting. I mean, he was he was willing to drop the title to Sting. But this all gets wrapped up in Flair taking the blame for WCW business. And then I think laundering through Dave. No, actually, I was never a problem. Sting couldn't do business. It wasn't that I couldn't do business. Right. Sting. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, he's just kind of, he's fucked. Yeah. And that's just like the most aggressive actor here. Uh, Bill Watts had his guys. I mean, uh, when he came in, then that was really the, the, the rise of Ron Simmons. So Ron Simmons, like when Bill would talk to Dave would be getting much more favorable, uh, coverage in the observer, uh, Luger of Dusty, and I can keep on going down the line. I mean, Magnum TA was already gone at that point, but you know if Ole had another option, Barry Windham. Like, you have, like, all these things here that uh, just slowly and slowly just chipped away at the armor 
with him that we had this that that resulted in this narrative that existed sadly for far too long. Uh, nineteen ninety three awards best baby face Atsushi Onita wins. Uh, with Sting coming in second. I just, I can't help but notice, and the reason why I include all these awards is that every year Sting is considered one of the best baby faces, one of the most charismatic. Okay. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, we know why. I know. You know? <laughs> I know. Yeah, but, but it's like, even these people recognize that he's really good at that part of pro wrestling. So. Yeah. 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 And the fact that he run, he's runner up to, Onita in the ascent of FMW, where FMW is something that I don't even think that the uh, uh, that the Dark Side of the Ring properly equated like how big the FMW was at a time. Like the fact that he was number two to him right in that ascent, he still got it. You know, just but I sometimes I feel like my role is putting things into context in a way. Sure, no, I, I like that. That's why I think that's another reason I think it's fun to do the awards is because you kind of hear some other things that were going on at that time that I, that I think is fun. Uh, feud of the year, Jerry Lawler versus Bret Hart won. Uh, Sting versus Vader was an honorable mention. Most charismatic, Ric Flair won with Sting coming in third. Match of the year, uh, Toyota and Yamada versus Kansai and Ozaki. Uh, Dave, if you weren't reading The Observer around this time, huge All Japan Women's fan. I mean... There, there's rumors. Well, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Dave, and, and, and that was because the greatest wrestler ever, Terry Funk, said, you got to go see what the girls are doing. Like, like, And then all the other wrestlers were saying no. It's like, Terry's like, no, they're better wrestlers than us. And Terry took him to a Zenjo show. And he became a fan right after that. Yeah. Uh, so he's constantly talking about how great All Japan Women's uh, is in this time. Uh, Sting versus Vader. Uh, in February was an honorable mention. Worst match of the year. God, I had to take this note out. Uh, four doinks versus Bam Bam Bigelow and the Head Shrinkers and Booger Bastion won worst match of the year. WWF New Generation. <laughs> yes. Uh, but tied for fifth, Sting versus The Prisoner, a.k.a. Nails. <laughs> this was just a hit. Like I'm now fully convinced that we have bad actors who nearly every step of the way, if you want to start with Ron Bassman, yes, bad actors yes. from the beginning, manipulating and taking this guy's career. Like the only time he's had agency was to sign for more money. He never has like, like, like I think you're dead on about, about Flair being his champion, but Flair will immediately throw him under the bus for press coverage here. Yeah, and who is Sting's champion? Sting never had a champion in the back, it feels like. No, and as best I can tell, Sting was never part of a a backstage faction. Oh, no, which became really indicative of the WCW booking committee that would have come in in future years in the end of WCW. He was just, he was bad at the politics. And in WCW at this time, that's all that fucking mattered. Yeah, well, there's a reason. This time it gets worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a reason why I'm insisting that we talk about Kip Fry because really <laughs> the story of WCW is the story of inner office politics. Yeah, and and a lot of the times, well, when it's Dusty and Flair, they're also trying, Dusty especially trying to protect himself and his his son. Flair, I don't know. You know, Flair 
I can't necessarily say that as Booker, his number one thing was like keeping himself strong, even though he was the champion. But, you know, because he was often booking himself uh, as a heel, even when he was Booker. Right. Uh, I, I, I would say that Flair, if there's one thing I would say, is that Flair liked to protect the championship. He was good about protecting the championship. That is the positive of Flair as a Booker. But incidentally, the championship, more often than not, was on Ric Flair's waist. Sure. So, Sting was just always a guy, I think, who didn't have enough power otherwise. Right. Where he couldn't get fucked around. He was like, they had to do some stuff with him, but they could also fuck with him um, to make other people happy. And that's just kind of what he dealt with his whole career. Yeah. And I mean, if anything, Sting, and it looked like it looked like Eddie Gilbert did. If if Eddie Gilbert remained with WCW and did not, and if Hot Stuff like when they did that jump, if they didn't get fired, he would have been the protector because Eddie Gilbert was the one person who seemed to understand. And now that makes me wonder about the uh, 1993 to 1994 Tri-State to W to ECW. Now, if you could have had him in charge of that and sing over there. All right, moving into '94, uh, Dusty is out. Uh, he resigns. Basically, you know, all the power went against him. Uh, you know, a lot of Eric Bischoff involved in that, I would say. Uh, and Ric Flair becomes the head of the booking committee again. So we got Flair back in charge for right now. And 1994 is a really fascinating year. So you got Sting. Uh, WCW brings in an international world heavyweight championship and sting is involved with that uh feuding with rick rude uh he had a title unification match at clash 27 uh with flair uh sherry sensational sherry turned on sting uh, in the match so uh, that helped uh flair turn heel but then in june of 94 WCW finalized a deal with one Hulk Hogan. So uh, this I, this is not hyperbole. This changed the wrestling business forever. Yeah, so the, the four years leading up to it, Hogan knew that McMahon wanted him gone. They tried with Warrior. Warrior didn't take, and he had more and more demands and just was the end of a marriage, basically, with him and and McMahon, which if you think about it, that's 11 years, really. That's a long stint there. And he jumped over there. There was a lot of promises that with Turner Broadcasting System and of all its subsidiaries that Hulk Hogan and Hogan Mania would be pushed further and in more households than ever. And he became the richest person ever in wrestling history with that one contract, basically. And most importantly, Aaron, what was the big part of the contract that really would shape WCW history from that point forward? Well, I, I didn't include a lot of stuff about the contract, but a lot of it is he was getting a huge cut of all the pay-per-views, all the gates. Uh, if the pay-per-views went over a certain amount, he basically got the rest. <laughs> like It was wild. Yeah, uh, Turner sold the river to him, and the, he kept this up into the Attitude Era, into the boom. He had these things. Though the thing I was looking for, Aaron, I thought I'd pitch up for you, complete creative control. 
not just Flair saying he chooses who he loses the belt to, complete creative control. And those three words would drastically change WCW history. Oh, we're getting to that. To worry not. Here's a funny note from Hogan, though. Uh, asked if he had ever in the past thought he would wind up working for WCW, he said, no way, man. If you had said this was going to happen 10 years ago or even a year ago, I would have said you were out of your mind. But then when I was filming Thunder in Paradise, I met Sting and saw what a great guy he is, and we got to be friends. I also met Eric Bischoff during filming, and I got to see what a young, driven guy he was, and I saw how things worked there. Things weren't dragged through the mud like I was used to. <laughs> Yeah, dragged through the mud for the one person that basically kept the McMahon name in wrestling. Yes. Uh, there were rumors around this time that Sting might be looking to go to WWF uh, or just quit wrestling. Uh, but, you know, they're paying him a lot of fucking money. And so the question was whether they were going to continue paying him a lot of fucking money. Uh, and basically, they decided to break out the checkbook for him and for Vader. Uh, they were paying Vader $600,000. And this is at the same time Vader is making a shitload of money in UWFI. So he is, he's eclipsing at this point as the highest paid wrestler, probably in the entire business. It would have been him or Mudo. Until Hogan comes over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not Mudo. It would have been him or Baba. I mean, because Baba, even like pulling the All Japan salary was a rich guy. Like he was notorious. So, like the guy like owned like, I think it was like a quarter square mile of one of the islands in hawaii at one point like he like the baba family got rich off wrestling yeah so they bring in hogan uh versus rick flair for the august 24th clash of the champions and it does fucking gangbusters highest rated television special on tbs in 94 uh, second most widely viewed pro wrestling show ever on TBS. Uh, notably, second to uh, the Sting versus Black Scorpion clash. Uh, the highest rated pro wrestling show on cable since September of 1990. That same show with Sting and Black Scorpion. The most widely viewed pro wrestling match ever on cable television. Largest viewing audience for any match in NWA WCW modern history. So, you know, it did big business. Uh, people were very excited about, well, not big business. I mean, it's a, it's a TV show. So uh, it wasn't doing like pay-per-view numbers, but you know, it's, it's big. And Sting gets involved because he did a run-in to save Hogan in the match. So Sting is there, but you're seeing him clearly set as like the, the third banana uh, in this whole thing. And it leads up to Bash at the Beach 94, which, man, there's a whole other story behind this that I don't want to go into on, <laughs> on this show. But Hogan beats Ric Flair in a loser-must-retire match. Ric Flair forced into retirement. They really love trying to force Ric Flair to uh, get young or retire. Like, this is... Yeah, get young. Yeah, I mean, like, because that became a thing also in WWF when he came over. It's like, oh, he's too old very quickly. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And Rick, man. 94 Bash the Beach is insane. <laughs> yeah. Well, this mic is why uh, I didn't uh, mention full control earlier because uh, Wrestling Observer, November 7, 1994, 
Hogan apparently had signed like a very short contract with WCW to start. He was not signed past December 28th, 1994. And here's when Dave reports, it is believed he's negotiating for full on-paper control of the company in order to stay, but almost surely will settle for nothing less in the way of power that he already has, which is full control of scenarios involving him, John Tinta, Ed Leslie, Jim Duggan, and Honky Tonk Man, and being part of a new booking committee. Uh, But here's what Dave writes uh, around this time. Without Hogan, where does the company go? It's a real paradox. To Sting? That day is long past, Dave writes. Sting is the shining star of 1988. We're talking 1995. Although he was on the card, Sting was not a factor for the record pay-per-view at Bash of the Beach, has no effect on the clash rating, and was only at this last show for a cameo. If he had potential to be the man to carry the company profitably, that ball was dropped many years ago. And they tried several times, in each case backing out because it wasn't working. I think everyone knows how I feel about that paragraph. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is, God, just deliberate, like, manipulation of what happened to suit your friend's best interests there. Yes. God. Yes, yes, yes. The, 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 I'm still soaking that that paragraph in. Aaron does not send me notes ahead of time here. (laughs) Sorry. I like to get your, your just reaction to things. Yeah, no, that's for the best here. That's just insane because as as like you've laid out his his like big runs have been what four months five months like basically from clash to clash in a way like how can you meaningfully meaningfully evaluate make a such a broad statement like that with the data that was presented? Yeah, I mean when when Sting won the title uh, the first time uh, at the July nineteen ninety Great American Bash, like a month in, Dave is talking about how. Sting is failing as champion. And this is 1990. I mean, it's hard to to gauge title reigns now in a month. But in 1990, you didn't know shit after a month of a a title reign. Right. And especially 1990 WCW and that part of America, too, because you're not talking about other than... Because by that time, they kind of eliminated the traditional loop that they're running in. But, I mean, you're talking... 5,000 max capacity buildings that they were running when they weren't taping TV. And even when they were taping TV, they were not huge buildings. So not really a, a lot of points of evaluation here. Whereas like Hogan immediately, his first match sells out the Orlando arena. So like, of course you're gonna say, like, Oh yeah, no, you had to bring in the real star to do this because the scenario completely changes at the drop of a hat. You're judging him with new rules and not the rules he was, he was running with. Also remember we're heading into a recession in 1990 right yeah i mean i mean and that recession was a very very uh it wasn't as bad as the oil crisis in the 70s but in the southeast that the the few textile mills and mill towns that still existed through the 80s were done by the the post uh iraqi war one uh recession yeah and you know, it's just the truth that like the towns that WCW ran in are towns that are more likely to be affected by economic downturns. So, you know, I haven't done like I haven't grafted, you know, uh, an economic analysis onto uh, WCW house show business. I have no idea, but I'm just saying it's worth considering uh, well, well, I, in the context I, of all this. 
Well, Greenville was a prominent stop on the Crockett Loop, weekly loop. It was. I can I can speak of what, what what Greenville went through, and this is history that I've picked up on from the years I've lived here. Basically, it took Greenville and like a very proactive mayor to rebound from the nineties recession. It took them basically to, until the, the next recession to rebound and bring in companies and bring in investment into the area. And some places still have not recovered from the closing of all the textiles and the mills. And, you know, Spartanburg used to be this giant hub town of the train or the, the, the railways. And how's, how, how does a train yard town exist in 2022? Like that this was the area that they ran dating back to when the Crockett family started promoting and it completely changed over a period of 15 years. And it's not like WWF was doing monster business. No, uh, they were taping raw at high school arenas, high school basketball courts. Right. So, you know, and, and Dave mentions this, but he doesn't ever seem to factor it in despite popular belief. WCW basically always beat WWF in television ratings. Like right, clear much was. better syndication. Yeah, and that was because they were always tied into TBS. Like the concept of a superstation for our younger listeners was something that like you would get like these regional just TV affiliates that started putting their feet up on cable, and TBS along with WGN were the two big ones that did that, and WCW was on that. Whereas WWF into the nineties, they still weren't on a solid contract with USA. And what they put on USA was Tuesday Night Titans, which not much different from their syndicated stuff when their big TV show was always main event or superstars. Right. I mean, WWF had done uh, pretty good pay-per-view numbers, but there's a lot more tied into that context-wise about how they were able to uh, get very good pay-per-view deals and try to box WCW out. Um, but anyway, I'm just I'm going to defend Sting. So Sting spends... Second half of 94, most of 95, which we'll get to later, uh, teaming with Hogan uh, in battles against the Dungeon of Doom. <laughs> and, and who were part Dungeons and Dooms? A lot of people that Hulk Hogan had creative control over and made sure that they were in a prominent angle with their buddy. Yep, all of, all of Hogan's buddies. Uh, and then right at the end of 94, Randy Savage debuts on WCW television. Another guy that the WWF had decided or that Vince McMahon had decided was too old and uh, kicked him out the door. So in a period of 36 months, your biggest star in history has returned to your company. The biggest star in wrestling history joined your company and the person who was the one C to him joined your company and you're staying. And as we've gone through over the last half hour, you don't really have people looking out for you until Sting took things in his hands in 1990. Yeah, we've gone from Bill Watts meeting with the top paid wrestlers in WCW, and they were Sting, the Steiner brothers, and Rick Rude. And now you've got Hogan, Flair, and Savage at the top of this company. And you better know that Hogan made sure his friends got paid too. Like, oh, yeah. not as much as Sting. But Sting probably went from being the number one down to probably six or seven on the list. Right. But Sting is like, has a moment of power when he's like the top paid guy at one point. Uh, but whoever is making more money out of this group, it does not matter because Hogan and Flair are much better at politics 
than Sting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have one and two, maybe one and three. Michaels was a good politician, but you have one. In, you, oh, have, yeah. you have two. You have two of the top three great backstage politicians of all time have now entered the waters, and you're just you're just surfer Sting. You're just out sure. here. You're just little old Steve Borden. No one's looking out for you. I mean, a guy who didn't come up in wrestling. You know, he didn't know about wrestling until he was a grown ass man. You know, so he was a, just a fucking bodybuilder. Yeah, I keep on going back to what what would have happened if Sting has had one prominent person in the office, like if Gary Juster loved him and Gary Juster was in on the meetings, like how that would have changed, or if he. Or if he just like had a spine. Uh, yeah, I mean, there are a few stories of uh, that I haven't included of Sting refusing to do jobs, uh, but pretty uncommon compared to other guys, <laughs> like guys who would just like refuse to show up for shows and shit if they didn't get their way. Uh, much cooler time in wrestling, to be sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hogan, uh, like the coolest thing that Hulk Hogan ever did was decide to quit wrestling for like six months because he didn't want to go against the NBA, and there's nothing anyone could have done about it because it was in his contract that he could do so. Like just yeah. people just doing power move after power move against each other, and no one coming out ahead. No one really came out ahead of this. They all just no. killed each other, and Sting was just sitting there covered in blood going, hi uh what a fight here i'm still here though i'm okay yeah he did, didn't really play the game uh very well so the the 1994 observer awards best baby face onita repeats uh sting is in the honorable mentions that year right behind nobuhiko takata most unimproved hogan wins sting comes in fifth uh most charismatic onita wins sting comes in fifth most overrated, Hogan wins. Sting is an honorable mention. Worst match of the year. The winner, Jerry Lawler and Queasy and Cheesy and Sleazy versus Doink and Dink and Wink and Pink. Back-to-back -back years. Four, four Doinks <laughs> have won that award. Back-to-back. -back. <laughs> uh, honorable mention, Hogan and Sting and Dave Sullivan against Avalanche butcher not that butcher and kevin sullivan so avalanche ron weiss another one of their friends god yeah hogan so hogan's whole whole view of wrestling was what you would talk about as like a face territory so your promotion is going to be booked around a big baby face as a champion and you the heel of the month Shows up, a monster heel, uh, looks like a monster. Hogan dispatches him. Now we run up the next heel for the next cycle. That's how Hogan believed wrestling should be booked. So he's bringing in his buddies, yes, but also guys that he thinks, hey, this is like a monster heel who I can beat at the next pay-per-view, and then we can move on to the next guy. Yeah, and it has to be specifically in his mold. You will not see Cactus Jack against Hulk Hogan, even though Cactus Jack very visibly is a monster. Vader. Hogan did not want to face Vader. Oh, <laughs> Hogan, no, he didn't. He did not want to face Vader. And like the remarkable thing about that is with one big change, his booking strategy was not much different from Vincent J. McMahon's strategy. No. The only... The only difference was Bruno would lose one match in the lead up and he would get his comeuppance in a steel cage and walk out of the steel cage with the other guy crippled on the ground. That's the only difference. 
Hogan would do insane things to get out of doing jobs. And I'm going to include a very funny story later about Sting trying to get out of doing a job. Okay, so as we got going here, I realized... (laughs) I don't know. There's just a lot to talk about. I mean... There's a lot going on in this period of wrestling and around Sting. I cut out so much stuff, guys, but I feel like almost everything we talked about was like very important to what we're doing. Well, my tangents on Kip Fry and Jim Hurd really weren't, but they added some flavor. Well, yeah, and that was like a minute or whatever. Uh, I think the main, you know, maybe did I need to talk about the entire midget blowing up a boat? uh, Yes, yes, you you need to talk about (laughs) Cheatham. Yeah, yeah. It's intrinsic to the fabric of Sting. Like, understanding that Sting went through that and did not put up a fight, a lot yes. of things make sense with Sting. Uh, I, you you make a very valid point there. Uh, but, look, this is becoming a four-parter, is what I'm saying, basically. <laughs> we're, we're, we're going to be staring down the barrels eventually of, will this cross the 10 hours combined range? So, so place your bets now. So that was Sting part two, and I guess we're going to save 95 to 90 nine for part three let me tell you there's a lot coming up because uh here very soon we're going to be talking about uh the new world order which i mean (laughs) you if you even if you started watching wrestling a week ago you've heard about the nwo by now uh, and that's going to take up most of the rest of this decade hey and you know we got to talk about uh brandon lee you know, I mean, there, there's a lot of things that are happening, and I, I, I do think that the length of this might seem intimidating, but I, I feel like in a way, uh, one, I wouldn't do this if I wasn't thoroughly enjoying it, but two, I feel like that understanding uh, wrestling and how we got to this point, there are certain people that I think if you study, you really get a different perspective or a clear picture of wrestling and at least through this episode i think that we have kind of laid out the the argument that not only is sting like personifies pre-bischoff wcw but sting also proposes the idea of what if you have someone who has all the crowd connection and all the talent to have the to have thousands of people in the palm of their hand but they don't have the most important person in the palm of their hand. And that's themselves. Ooh. Spooky. You're exactly right, though. It's um, how do you book a champion to be successful? And one of the most interesting things I think we're going to talk about in, in part three is the comparison of Sting to Bill Goldberg. When oh, Bill yeah. Goldberg becomes WCW champion. Uh, so I think that's a very interesting um comparison and we will make it in part three look mike if you get tired of doing these i'll do them it's fine nah, man i love this i, I <laughs> the, the, the quote nick gave i've lived for this shit i i mean yeah, anything me that lets anything that lets me talk about the cable permeation of 1991 is something that i'm going to gladly not shut up shut up about so we'll be back in the future it will be yes. in may It'll be at least in May. We'll try not to do two months between it, but you know, it's a busy t- time, but we'll find time another two hours to talk about yes. the NWO sting 
trying to think of other insane things about saying uh we're not talking about juggalos yet juggalos say for the last episode no that's the, the last episode the, that's a treat for the end for brian it is but the but the key is i've already done all the notes and we've both already watched all the matches so yeah know. we might do the next episode next week yeah, Actually, we... no, we're not doing the next episode next week. I, I, I forgot that Dead or Alive is on Thursday. Okay, yeah. Well, but we will we should be able to knock it out soon. And We will do the part three before Double or Nothing. I can guarantee that. That's a Mike Spears guarantee. That's good. That's a good idea. We should do that. So we'll get that. Uh, and one day we'll finish the series, maybe. But thanks, everyone, for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, sound off in the comments. <laughs> Bye.